Let's look together at Luke 15, uh, verses 1 through 12. I'm, I'm not going to go over exactly everything that we covered, but I need to quickly touch base on it so that it puts it into context. And it says in Luke 15, verse 1, then that then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him. That would have been near to Jesus to hear him. And so we talked about this a lot last week. These, when you hear a phrase like this, tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, it comes up at different times in the Gospels. Those are talking about categories of, of people that would have been recognizable in Jesus' day. The tax collectors were the, those who were working for Rome. They were collecting taxes on behalf of a foreign empire. They were viewed uniformly as traitors, uh, betrayers of their own people, completely disregarded by a, the large swath of society and particularly by the religious leaders. They were considered to be the absolute, utter outmost uh, that you could be in terms of being welcomed into the family of the nation. They were completely pushed away, disregarded, ostracized. They were wealthy, but they were friendless. And those were, they were also known as the publicans. So that's one group here. The other group that's noted as being drawn to Jesus here is the group that would have been known as the sinners. And that is kind of a designation that speaks about people who would have had, you know, they understood everybody all of us in, in the Bible. Don't confuse this with the idea that there's any of us here that, that don't sin. We all do. But in Jesus' day, that name meant something. It, was, it referred to a group of people who, because of the choices they made, because of the kind of life that they were involved in, the, their morality and, and the openness about it, they had been also viewed as people who, honestly, they were also to be stayed away from because they would bring you down. So these two groups of people, these outsiders, were, were told in verse 1, actually were drawn to Jesus. And they drew near to hear him. What did they hear? We talked about this. They, they heard some tough words. They heard words about make a new start, be open to what God is doing. They heard things like you need to be open to repenting, to turning around and making a change. But what they definitely heard in, in, in relation to all of that, what they heard most of all with with clarity, was they heard the love of God reaching out to them. And it was something that hadn't been done. Jesus was moving into an area that the other, other leaders of his day refused to go. There were clear-cut lines in his day. Here are the good people, and here are the bad people. And the bad people, they've made their choice. And Jesus said, yeah, and God loves them and wants to reach them. And this had everything to do with what happens. Notice what it says in verse 2. It says, the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man, look at, this was their complaint, wasn't it? This was their concern. This man receives sinners and, what? He eats with them. We talked about how those were levels of, you know, it's, it's like they were saying, hey, it's one thing that this Jesus, who's supposed to be a holy and righteous man, he knows the scriptures, doesn't he? He knows what the Bible has to say about how our company defines us and shapes us. And yet he so cavalierly moves amongst these people as if it's not a big deal to God. Who does he think he is? Doesn't he realize the example he's setting? Not only does he receive them and welcome them into his conversation and discussions, but he actually does something worse than that in their mind. He eats with them. And we talked about how being a friend or the word we used, companion. We said if you look at that word companion, someone who you associate with in a regular way, that that word had to do with two other words, come, panis, with bread. And we talked about how 
it, it had to do with when you eat together, there's a degree of fellowship or of intimacy that is achieved just in talking together over a meal. And what they were saying is Jesus was violating what was clearly a line that he should not be crossing. He was not simply interacting with these people. He was receiving them into levels of some intimacy. And what's more, he was pushing even further in the place that you would only go if you were choosing to have someone as a companion and a friend at a far more you know, pronounced level. And this was something that they had a strong break with Jesus over. And that's what prompts this next passage, this story, this story with three little stories in it. The story that Jesus gives is really the story of lost things. And he has three little stories that slide on the last one. The parable, there's a story of the, the you know, lost sheep. There's the story of the lost coin. And then there's the story of the lost son. That's what we call the prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful. But really, the prodigal son story, which expands, is about two lost sons. We'll see that as the weeks go by. But Jesus tells this story in response to their criticism. They said that these, we can't believe that you're interacting with these people. And Jesus said, let me tell you a story. You know what he knew? And you look at it closely. You know what he knows? He understands that human beings tend to, to, to learn best through story. Jesus would tell stories. You know, we, we can grasp, you know, when certain principles are pronounced and propositions are given to us and we'll listen and we might get some of it and if we're writing things down, it affects us. But proposition is one thing. You know, here are some things for you to consider and we're just talking and you're listening to someone share them. And it's another thing to hear a story. Because a story, you see, Jesus knew how, God made human beings in an interesting way. He made us in such a way that we are constructed, wired to learn through story. Things get activated in us that wouldn't normally get activated. That's what the, why we explain the popularity of movies and books. I mean, people read, people go to watch films. You know, are, they're drawn in. They suspend what we, we're told. We suspend our disbelief. We, all of a sudden, we begin to activate another thing that God gave us that is a mark, by the way, of his image in every human being, the, which no other, no other creation has, only a human being, the ability to imagine. And so much of what we create is a product of our imagination. And a story engages us at the level of our imagination because it invites us to think and to look at something. So, and it's also, we may, all, we may hear a story and it's not so clean cut. When Jesus would tell a story, it was inviting someone to wrestle with what he was saying, to think about what is he getting at. I see this. Another person might look at it and say, yeah, but did you hear this? This is what I got out of it. And so he could take... Uh, by using stories, he could break into places that otherwise people would not be open. He couldn't get into their heart a lot of times. And I see this as a gesture, we talked about this, of an amazing amount of compassion on the part of Jesus. Because, in, yes, he's talking to the, the outsiders. He's making the case on their behalf. No question about it. But what he's also doing is he's reaching out to these self-righteous leaders. And he's trying to say, can't you see? Can't you see what God's trying to do here? You don't understand me. You don't understand why I be with these, interact with these people that you've written off because you don't understand me, and you don't understand me because you don't understand God and how much He cares about Him. So let me tell you. Let me try to put it to you in a different way to break through your paradigm, which is so blocked off. You're barricaded, man. You got nothing, and your heart is. You're written them off. You've missed God's heart. And He says, "Let me tell you some story." Let me tell. He goes, look, none. This jumps into verse 3. And so he spoke the parable to them, saying, look, follow with me quickly. 
What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? He says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, he rejoices, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, rejoice with me because I found my sheep that was lost. And I, I say to you, Jesus says, that likewise there will be more joy in heaven when one outsider that you've written off turns back to God. And he says, and comes home and repents. He says, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she's really happy. And she calls her friends. She even tells her neighbors, you know that coin that I had lost? You know that valuable piece that I had? I couldn't find it. I knew it was in the house. I was looking everywhere. For I found it. That's good for you. That's great. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy. Joy. God's heart is uplifted. God is excited. Heaven has a party. When one turns around, one that, you see, don't write people off, Jesus is saying. Don't write them off. The stories are amazingly similar, those first two parts of that larger story of lost things. Think about it. The parable of the sheep. He, somebody said to me after service last evening, they said, you know what? I was, they said, you know the parable of the sheep? He says, you know, one, one, one sheep is lost of the hundred. And he goes, but I was thinking about it. He says, it was like if I had change in my pocket. He says, and I had a dollar's worth of change, and then ah, somewhere during the day, I, when I went back to put it down on the counter, I, I had lost one of, I lost a penny. So what? It's only a penny. And that was the point. That one mattered. See, that's See, the, accent, the, the two stories are similar. They both have to do with lost things, searching, and finding. Lost and found, and a search in the middle. But there's a different accent. It's like these are two similar words, but each has a different accent point. The accent point on the, on the story of the lost sheep has to do with the fact that the one, the one matters. Out of 100, yeah, it's only one. Not, you still have 99, but that one matters to God. He was saying, that matters to God. Don't write people off as meaningless. Then he says, and then as far as the coin is concerned, the, when the woman is searching, notice what is the emphasis placed? Where is the accent on that? Same story in a way, but it's different because the em emphasis is not on the one as much as it is on what she's doing to find it. She lights the lamp. She sweeps the room. She keeps diligently sweeping around to find it, searching carefully until she gets it. It has to do with action. It has to do with that God is not simply passively disinterested in the plight of human beings, but that God actively involves himself deeply in the concern of a lost humanity. And that's what he's really saying. God, in a way he's saying, do you want to know why I'm here? I am God's searching. I am God's searching for the lost. I, my very presence is an evidence of God's concern. So while you suggest that somehow I'm violating what is an appropriate behavior, of, or, you know, the way that I'm supposed, or a holy man is supposed to conduct himself, I am letting you, trying to get you to understand that God cares about people, and don't write them off, even as he was saying, I'm not writing you off, for your self-righteousness and your angry spirit, I reach out both directions. And so we come to verse 11. It says, and then he says, then he says, and let me tell you one more thing. 
And he starts, and so we start this magnificent, sublime, and beautiful story. The story of the prodigal. It's awesome. It's got so much in it. It's like a diamond with all kinds of cuts and corners. Every, every part of it shines something forth. It's great. It contains the essence of everything that God said he, he has come to do for us. It has some of the themes that strike at the deepest cores of a human being. All are wrapped in it. It says here, then there was a certain man, and he had two sons. We're told, obviously, one was older and one was younger. We're going to see that prodigal was the younger. And again, I mentioned to you that prodigal was not the name that he is. Jesus never says, this guy's called the prodigal. That's the name that's been given to him over time by tradition. But the word prodigal is in the story. It talks about how he wasted himself. Prodigal means waste. At least one of the meanings of prodigal is wastefulness. So when we say the prodigal son, and we're saying he's the, he was the wasteful son. He squandered something that was a gift. He lost it. But really, he is the lost son. And so this idea of Jesus saying that the, he, this man had two sons, one an older, one a younger. The younger, is, we're told here, verse 12, look, says to his father, Father, I need you to do something for me. And again, this request was a bit of a reach, as we'll see in a moment. He says, I want you to give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And I, I basically, I want my inheritance now. I need to cash it in. I want to cash in my inheritance now. I need, a, I need to get a little early. And now, the younger brother, by the way, the, the research tells us that uh, during this period of time in Jesus' ministry, check this out, that, that the, the way things were done in terms of the inheritance was that the older son in Jesus' day always got two-thirds of the inheritance, always. It was standard. And so the younger son would have gotten, in this case, one-third. He was the young, older son, and they based this out of a passage in, in Deuteronomy, was always given the, the, what was called the double portion. And the younger son, in fact, if, he had, if there were six other sons, they would all split the one-third. The older would still get the two-thirds. It was a way of retaining the head of the, this, this kind of patriarchal way of working in a community base that was more like an extended family, almost a little tribe. And so the wealth was retained. But since there were only two sons, and they would have seen, they would have immediately, they're already calculated. This is, the, the listener has already got this from Jesus because this is their life. So the story hits something very real, very quick. And they would have understood immediately that this was an, uh, an amazingly brazen request. For us, it's like, well, you know, I kind of, no, for them it was a big deal. We'll see why in a moment. But I can imagine the, the you know, it, usually what would happen is, no one would, first off, you didn't do that. You didn't ask for your inheritance early. You would wait till the father was, was either dead or dying or so far beyond the point of being able to take care of himself that he would, in, in turn, it would be given. And, and, and at that point, it would be divided up. But there's nothing here to indicate. See, the father was not obligated to, give him, to answer his request the way he wanted and we know why, by the way. If, you, if the story tells us, Jesus, the way Jesus tells the story, we can already get the picture of what's happening here. He doesn't want to be home anymore. He's discontented in his father's house. He says to him, basically, I got to get out of here. I got to leave. Um, I need my inheritance. I really, 
would love for you to give me my money. Uh, <laughs> but Father, either way, I just want you to know I'm gone. See, it appears that what he really wanted here was he wanted um, freedom. And he want, home for him had come to rep represent confinement. He felt trapped. It, whereas when he thought about the far country, you know, and Jesus is going to drive this home, that had to do with freedom without restraint. See, he had freedom, yeah, in the Father's house, but it had a kind of constraint on it. But what he really wanted to try was that freedom without any restraint. And so the issue clearly was not, when you, we see it here, not, this was not an abusive father. This is not a demanding, demeaning father. This is not a person who was uncaring, uh, comes very caring. Um, there's a deep love there, uh, the picture that Jesus gives us. No, it just really had to do... In fact, the only tension that seems to be in the house is between the two brothers, interestingly. The picture that Jesus gives us is of, of, a, of a father and a son basically having a conversation around the fact that, honestly, I just feel trapped here. I can't take it anymore. And we know where he wants to go. He wants to go to the far country. And the far country represented life... Most of the time, we think of it as here he is in a in a kind of rural, rural environment. And many times what is pictured as the far country, because of the way it's described, is like the city. And you know, one of the interesting things is uh, a while back, somebody had told me about this book. Uh, they said, you would probably love, love to read it. It was called Devil in the White City. And I actually really enjoyed it. One of the things about it, the, the title is initially is like, well, what is that? You know, but the White City represented the World's Fair in Chicago at the turn of the century, between 18, really at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s, that period, turn of the century. And that, that World's Fair that was held in Chicago, they actually built, it was an, so there's two parallel stories in that book, and there's a reason why I'm bringing it up, actually, okay? There, there, there's the one story had to do with this whole idea of constructing the World's Fair and the amazing architectural breakthroughs that were conceived. And so there's this, um, this great project being managed and seeing it come to pass. So that's one of the stories that's happening in real life, the story of the building of the, what is painted white. It becomes an artificial city that, that shows the world what the future might look like. And people come from all over the world to the World's Fair in Chicago. But there's also something else that happens, the devil in the white city. And that is one of the first recorded serial killers is lurking in that city. And it, it, the, the thing intertwines together. and it's, it's fascinating. One of the things that came out in that book when I was reading it was that people would come many times, especially to Chicago. From There were t lots of young men and lots of young women who made their way to Chicago because they thought that's where everything was happening. Jobs were there, uh, action, this is where the life was. And they talked about, one of the, on a side note, how many of these innocent, especially young ladies, would come to the train depots and there were lines of predators waiting to take advantage and to pounce on them, to welcome them in, to bring them in and to win them over. And it, he talked about the amazing agony that was associated with how naive so many of those country girls and, and young men even, how many of them were murdered and never even heard of anymore. 
and how the, the police in the system of tracking crime was so unsophisticated that it was unprepared even for this type of thing. It's fascinating. My point is, is that prodigal in the same way is very naive. He doesn't, he's revealed by Jesus, someone who doesn't get it. He thinks he, he thinks he knows. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's got stars in his eyes. He's going to find out the hard way. And you get the impression, if you can just use your imagination for a moment, that the father is saying, son, now look, two couple things here. Do you know how much, first off, even if I decide to do it, do you know how much work it's going to take for me to liquidate? We're going to have to sell things off. We're going to have to do a whole lot of stuff just to do that, to get you that. And do you understand what you're asking me to bless you and to let you do? Do you have any idea what, what you're getting, what you're going to go off into? Do you know? It's a, it's a rougher world than you know. And they take advantage of people. There's a lot of predators out there. Father, I'm telling you right now, I can take care of myself. I want my money. I need you to give it to me. I'm asking you to do me a favor. If you love me, you'll give it to me. But I'm going either way because I can't take it here anymore. And you know that when you want to go, when we want to go, everything starts to sour. We get restless. We're antsy. We want to get out of here. I'm resentful. I want this. All of a sudden, this is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. This is what, all of a sudden, you know, we just, it's that whole idea of wherever that, you know, whatever, what does it say? Whatever won't let, whatever we won't let be, won't let us be. Right? It just bugs us. And he's saying, I got to get out of here. And you know what? He doesn't know what he has. And that's, it, let's just, I'll just throw this up quickly for what we'll call them considerations. But the first consideration that we're pulling out of here, in fact, you, you can see it, is that he really, there is an essential ungratefulness in his heart. And I'm going to suggest that there is in all of us, we'll just call this number, point number one, that there is a tendency in all of us to take God for granted. There is a tendency in all of us to take God for granted. We often, we often, you know, and prodigal is going to find this out, but what I'm suggesting is that this very real capacity to become discontented in the Father's house, no matter how good or loving we know him to be, there is a part of us that tends to be drawn towards a life away from the Father, a part of us that wonders if we're missing out, that tendency to take God's goodness for granted because, you know, and treat it lightly, casually, carelessly, poorly, to become, listen, restless in our blessing. Because something, you know, it's like, it's okay. I like being in your house. It's, it's not that I don't, you're not bad. You're a great, you're a good father. I just don't want to be here. I, I, I need to do something different. I, I, I feel tied down. I'm frustrated. I, I got to live. I, I got to experience things. And, you know, I understand, and I get that. And yet there are times where we begin to, maybe in our frustration, um, we, we begin to sometimes enter, entertain thoughts about jumping out of our commitments, we start to feel trapped by, with what isn't happening, and so maybe we start to think, well, maybe I just, maybe I just need to do something different, and, and, and this idea of taking God's goodness for granted is something that's sitting right there. I'm going to suggest that when we are feeling that kind of a yearning in us to run and go do something reckless and to give up on something and to throw in the towel and get out of Father's house, I, 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 I just, I got to get out. That when that is, be careful. Right there, be careful. That, that that is a place of tremendous vulnerability. We say, oh, didn't the prodigal son, didn't it all work out at the end? Yeah, it did. But do you know how much pain and loss was associated with that learning process? 
how much was squeezed out of him, how much hurt. I'm going to suggest that the hurt was a hurt that already started the minute he started asking for his money. You know? But let me, let's just first look at our last verse, which is verse 13, because it says this, that at, and not many days after, the younger son cast it in. He gathered all together. He journeyed, what, to a far country, and there he, what, he wasted his substance, his possessions, with prodigal living. So the younger son cashed it in, journeys to the far country. We're going to see that the far country represents the life of unfettered indulgence and, free, and, free, and being freed from confining restraints. And, and that's going to be Jesus' point. Can it deliver on its promise? No. But I'm reminded of a couple of more things, not just about our tendency to take God's goodness for granted, but also, stay with me here, also, I'm reminded of the fact that when it's all about us, other people's feelings are often carelessly, callously, and casually disregarded. And I can't tell you, as a pastor now for a number of years, how many times I have seen this up close and personal. And the devastation that occurs when we live only for ourselves. You see, I see selfishness in prodigal, but it's a blind selfishness. You say, where is the selfishness? It's a naive selfishness. He's not malicious. He's not trying to hurt his father. But when we hear him asking for his inheritance, we miss the wounding on the part of the Father that Jesus' listeners would have immediately sympathized with. They would have said, no. Because, you see, theirs was a culture that was held together by community bonds and traditions. And to ask for one's inheritance, for which a son had no real right to until his father's death, was basically like the son saying, Father, I can't wait for you to die. I don't have enough time. I need you to give me my money now. And it's like, where, where it, we, get, we hear that. It's like, you, it's not about, your feelings are not the issue here. It's about me. It, was a, it must have wounded him. I really don't have time to wait for you to die. So I need you to do something that for them would have been almost unheard of. And, and again, he basically says, I want my money. Now, when our circum circumference of vision is all about us, other people's feelings, even people to whom we are most connected and we love, are often treated like a worn-out rag. It just don't move me anymore. I don't know. I'm not inspired. I don't like it here. I gotta go. Yesterday's news. I mean, when, 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 may God deliver us from a self-centered thinking that cares so much about me that I can't even see what it's doing to the other person. May we be reminded that part of what it means to follow Jesus is to commit ourselves to living a sacrificial life. That means it's not just about always me. Our culture, our culture is constantly preaching at us, whatever it means, as long as you're happy. And the thing is, there's a lot of people who can get hurt in our pursuit of happiness if it's reckless. And prodigal is not, his, his issue, whatever, I, I, I understand you may not get it. He's hurting his father. He's telling him, you're, you're as good as dead to me. And you know that this happens a lot in life. And this, there's a reason, and, and it happens a lot at certain times in life. There are periods of life where we're more susceptible to really doing reckless things 
that leaves so much collateral damage and pain that it seeps through the generations. And we may think that, well, it's just about me. It's not just about me. It never is. And I'm going to contend, and I'm going I'm to say it with, with all my heart, that there are some things worth us sacrificing. You know, okay, prodigal says, I'm going to miss out. But what about, what about what it's going to cost? It's not just about what I want and what I need. And he's going to find out that there's a real wicked tail on the backside of the far country. He's going to find out it's not everything that it seemed to be. He's going to find out that Father's house wasn't as bad as he thought it was. That there was a whole lot there that he had taken for granted. The love and the safety and, and the feeling of being welcomed in. And, and, and there was so much there that he had taken for granted. And he'll find that out when he's chewed up and spit out when he's got nothing left to give. But that's what people do all the time. And he didn't realize that what he was doing is he was, because he was only thinking of him, it didn't matter what he was really saying. It was almost like, do you understand what someone were to come up to him and say, do you know what you're doing to your dad? Do you get this? You're breaking his heart. Now we know that he said, when he says, I want my inheritance, we can gather that there was one other person in the story who was anything less, he was, not enthused, let's put it that way. And that was the older brother who would have been angered at the, even the idea of his father entertaining the thought of taking all this time to cash in the family assets to give him his money. You know he's just going to waste that money. What are you doing, father? You've worked all your life for this. This is the family's. This is not his to waste like this. You don't have to do it. He has no right to it. You have, you're totally within your rights to say, no, don't do it. Don't give it to him. Don't, don't do this. Don't enable him. You know he'll waste it. You know it. Come on. It's ours. It's yours. Don't do that. Father relents. Why? Last thought. Because God taught us that God won't force us. He won't force us to stay if we don't want to. And he's not going to curse us on the way out. That the fact is that he, God could force us, but he won't do it. He never does. And that's a story, by the way, of the whole human race. Because love requires him to let us choose our way. Because love, given if it's the only alternative, isn't really love. You can't force it. It's got to be given. And God knows that. So God will never keep us against our will. It's, if it's in us to run, he'll only keep trying to tell us. People will pray for us. Maybe some of us, it's not about running to the place. See, look, for prodigal, it was about, I got curiosity. For others, it might be going back to something. It's about returning to a place that we got set free from. In either case, we need to stay in the Father's house Think about how, one of the last thing I'll say, you know the, the amazing thing here to me is, is that the father allowed himself to be wounded. And he allows himself to be hurt. God, God, listen, God allows himself to be hurt by his sons and daughters. He really does. Every time we disregard, demean, turn our back on, treat God like he's side stuff that when I need him, I'll get to him. 
There's certain moments where I need God, so I'll, I get serious. But otherwise, you know, it's about me doing my thing. And that's what really moves me. That's what fills me with passion. God saying, see, how, how God allows himself to be treated like that in a way. I, what? I get it, though, because he was wounded for our transgressions. I mean, it's the cross. He allows himself to be wounded by us. He was wounded for us. He gave everything. He allows, that is the essence of everything God is. The one who allows him, who loves us enough to allow himself to be hurt by us. And we, we have a prodigal in us. And we have that tendency to take for granted the good things of God, to treat them casually, to, to, to not value what is, is so important and, and to get so easily distracted into what, what attitudes, activities, whatever it is that, that we get consumed with that pull us away from God and we minimize the blessing of being a father's house. And, and Lord Jesus, I just want to say that I pray that as we've, we've sat here in this word that, that you, would, you would help us as much as possible not to hurt you, Lord, and, and to live in such a way that, that we, we are able to keep the commitments, Lord, that you've placed into our lives, Lord, and not, not hurt people. And, and especially, Lord, instead to be, to be a people who can, can be blessers. Oh, God. Um, how many of us, Lord, have been directly impacted because of others who have chosen not to live selfishly, but they've chosen instead to live sacrificially? They've chosen not simply to consume things on themselves, but to, but to give away a portion of their life so that we might be blessed. And we are byproducts of the sacrifices of others, the faithfulness of others, when maybe everything in them wanted to run away, quit, give up, throw it out, try something new. But something held them. We call that love. We call that a faithfulness. And how many of us have been impacted, not just by those who've broken promises, but what about the ones who've kept them? What about the people who, who fought through, Lord, their their doubts and fears and through their yearnings to run away and and lord they held the line and they loved with commitment not just with words all the way down they gave up their lives as you gave yours to be a servant lord and a servant has to do with the blessing of others not just about our own needs and you told us this is you modeled this for us lord i pray that we too would increasingly if we're serious about doing this seek to be the same type of a person who is a blesser and not simply living for ourselves, God, but living for the welfare and the blessing of the people who are in our families and our friends, Lord, and the people who need us to be consistent and to be strong, Lord, and to be good examples. And Lord, we know that it's going to take your grace to do it. We, we, we don't have in our own abilities. There are certain times where we've got nothing left to give, but you are there and you will help us if we are willing. So I really, I really just ask you, Lord, to help us and to bless. I pray that you bless our closing of this service, that you let these thoughts settle into our hearts, Lord. Bless the song that we're going to close with. Bless our time of giving. Bless this day. In Jesus' name, amen, Lord. <laughs>